Welcome to OnSite. This week, I have an incredible guest, Winker Doubledam. As you know, uh, podcast OnSite is really where I interview people who are the thought leaders, innovators, and people who kind of shape the way we live our lives. They shape the skylines of the world, and they're instrumental in the way in which we live our lives. They're innovators. Winka is no exception to that. She's one of the great architects of our generation. She is also the Mamilla Professor and Chair of Architecture. I want to talk to her about some of this, some of where she sees the future of architecture, and importantly, what it is to be a woman in a very male-focused and male-dominated industry. So, Winka, well, welcome to OnSite. It's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Sean. Super nice to be here. So, um, tell me a little bit about your early life, if you don't mind. How did you get into architecture and how did you become an architect? What was your motivation and what was that path? Ah, not a, not a linear one, but I can, I can explain the little crinkle. I started originally in sculpture and loved sculpture, but realized I didn't want to be a sculptor. And uh, the reason was that I realized that I'm more a person that likes to work in teams, likes to tackle challenges, and maybe also really I'm not the person, you know, the lonely artist on the attic kind of thing. So I switched to architecture, and that was really the thing I wanted to do. So I was and actually funny enough when I was about maybe four, I had already decided that. But I did make a little detour through sculpture. Uh, so I studied architecture in Holland, uh, realized that I really missed the fact that in Holland we don't do much architectural theory. There's not a, an approach like there is here in the U.S., so after I finished my studies in uh, Rotterdam, I applied for a grant and I came to Columbia University where I did my postgrad. And uh, the rest is history, still in New York. So being a student of architecture is very different, I believe, than be, you know, becoming a professional architect. What does that leap look like and how did you manage to go from being a student to winning your first assignment, getting your first job? and working on your first project? I think architecture is one of those professions where you definitely go through a phase where you work for different people, you learn. So already in Holland, when I was studying, I was working for a small office that actually worked a lot with Rem Kohlhaas. So that set my mind, I think, in a certain way. And then when I came to the US to study, I was a little early, so I worked for three months for Stephen Hall, then I worked for a few months for Chumi, for uh, Bernard Chumi uh, to do a competition, then did my uh, postgrad at Columbia, and uh, after that worked for Peter Eisenman. Peter's office was really fabulous. I loved working there. Uh, a lot of people seem to think he's very difficult. Well, the architecture is also very difficult, so uh, it was definitely commando training in, uh, in architecture, but it was also super, super interesting and intellectually uh, stimulating. The world goes in funny ways as we experience in an extreme version right now, but also then uh, it was the end of the Cold War. And the reason why I'm going into politics is that architecture is very sensitive to that. So when 
the Berlin Wall came down, uh, the economy of uh, Germany went down because the West had to take care of the East. And we had many projects in uh, Germany. So I took a few months leave of absence from Peter's office to do a competition and an exhibition. And uh, in that time, I got a project and, uh, yeah, started, uh, rented an office, uh, a desk in an office of friends of mine for $150 and uh, started my uh, first project that was a gallery on West Broadway and kind of sailed into it like that. It wasn't planned, really. Um, in that same time, uh, Columbia, uh, Bernard Chumi called whether I wanted to be uh, teaching with Ben van Berkel, who was teaching but couldn't be there the first month. So, you know, within a span of a few weeks, I had a tiny little project. I had a desk in an office and I had a little teaching job. So that's how it started. And that was 94. Fascinating. So you said something which was really interesting to me. You know, you said something about architects being difficult or or you worked with someone who it was difficult, but do you think architects are more artists than they are craftsmen? Because, you know, architects have a big reputation of being kind of prima donnas, having big egos. A lot of them seem to be narcissists. A lot of clients and developers speak behind their backs as if they're so difficult to work with, yet they still work with them and they still love the work that they produce. But there's this kind of sentiment that architects are almost like these artists who need to be stroked a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I love to be stroked. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure who doesn't, right? But it's kind of like it, it goes with the territory. Yeah, no, I think, you know, it's, um, it's a strange profession because I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, I'll just hire this person that I can really use myself. And that's just uh, not really the case. You know, there, is, there are things called buildings and there are things called architecture and they're very different right not every building is architecture and I think architects often have the ambition to change certain things because they feel they want to innovate architecture and they want to think of new things and they want to and that takes often a lot of education of uh, of the client and uh for that reason, I actually really like working with what, the, what my clients often say to me. I'm a really difficult client. Well, those actually are the people that are easy clients because they have a very strong opinion and it's really lovely to have a dialogue with them. But I think that is often why uh, some architects are considered maybe difficult because they have a huge task on their hands to get something done. They have a very high ambition to get the perfect thing done, they have to coordinate a massive team of engineers and consultants to get, you know, everything perfect. And then construction sites are also not that easy. So I think people often think this is a very easy profession. It's probably as difficult as being a brain surgeon. And it's highly, highly responsible, right? So you're always on your toes. And I think a lot of people are not so good in dealing maybe with that pressure. And then if they're thinking about all these things and they have all this stuff in their head and they get a, maybe an innocent question from someone, I think some people are very short because they're just really in their head and they're thinking about all these things they need to solve. And the question at that moment might seem to them irrelevant. So I think they're not so necessarily narcissistic. They're just really preoccupied and 
they're just on another plane, I think, sometimes than the moment that the question is asked. I see that a lot with with uh, construction meetings, you know, and I'm a bit more sensitive to that, but like, yeah, you see that happening, you know, where you, where people just talk past each other rather than have a dialogue. Um, yeah, so I, you, you said something really interesting. I want to go back to you said, you know, architecture is not a building. That everyone needs an architect, right, to build a structure of some sense. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that, yes, there's great architecture, there's good architecture, mediocre architecture, and just bad architecture. What do you think makes a great architect? What are the attributes? And how do you, you know, judge architecture and say, okay, that that architect is amazing, that one is not so good? Because it seems like a lot of the great architects uh, or assumed great architects, it's very subjective, right? It's a personal opinion. I may not like that design. It's almost like art. Why do you think an architect like Rem Koolhaas, as an example, is considered one of the greatest architects? And also considered one of the most difficult ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they seem to go hand in hand. Yeah, sometimes. You know, architecture is really about concepts. And I appreciate any person who works according to a very strong concept. And and often you feel that, right? Like when you feel attracted by a building, it's often because it seems like everything in that building um, really gels, really goes together in a, in a way that makes it more than just a simple thing. I, it's actually an interesting thing because I think people intuitively do feel what works and what doesn't work. And the reason why... I think it often works or why I can appreciate things that are not my taste, but still good buildings are because they are uh, done in a way that is consistent according to a very interesting concept. And people have really worked very rigorously to kind of keep that concept clean and clear. And that can be all kinds of concepts. So I think, you know, that's why a good building doesn't have to be your taste, but can still be, Uh, something you very much respect. And I think uh, a person that is maybe an architect that is a bit more well-known is just a person who is much more rigorous in sticking to concepts. Often a person who does think about, you know, what is the future of living or what is the future of wellness in, in the way we build buildings? You know, the reason why I say not every building is architecture because... You know, in Europe, we think an architect is someone who does space or an environment, or we make sure that the building is healthy or doesn't need maintenance or, you know, there is many other things that we think about that actually every architect thinks about, not just in Europe. It is just in Europe, it's more accepted that the architect does space Rather than the question I got a lot in New York was, oh, I have a really cheap architect who does the plans. Can you do the facade? Like there is nothing in between, right? And I, was, I often said, but I'm not a cosmetic surgeon. I do the whole body, you know? I do the building, right, the space right. you are actually occupying. And that has nothing to do with the two-dimensional plane of the facade or the two-dimensional plane of the plans. If these things don't go together, there's really no architecture is just plans and facade and that that was really shocking to me that I got that question quite a bit when I did um, 497 Greenwich with the folded glass people thought oh my god that's a building that attracts a lot of attention hence the real estate price you know flew up and so developers thought 
perfect. I'm going to get that architect and just have her do just the facade. And it's just not what I was interested in. So I, and they probably thought I was arrogant because I said, sorry, you know, like I don't do just facades. I do buildings. Right. So you, so you do the guts, you do everything. You don't just do a facade. Um, you'll do the entire building, the layout, the structural, the engineering. Not You are not the engineer, but you'll look at everything as yeah. a holistic. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, it's really important that our buildings are healthy. So I work a lot with passive solar energy. I work a lot with saving energy, very healthy materials, nothing off-gassing. I mean, I think a building is a machine that that really either is good for you or bad for you. And so I think of it as something that I really can protect my clients with. And so I would never just do one aspect of a building because I think it's in the operation of the building and the longevity of the building and the endurance of the building that actually it's either valuable or not. If I make something that is made out of some sort of foam material that is called some sort of American facade system that I kind of really not like um to say politely you know that i would never use because i feel it's really bad for people it's bad for living in it and it's also a building that takes an enormous amount of energy to heat and cool so i like to think of being healthy machines maybe for people that's a great way of looking at it i've never heard anyone describe it that way but i agree 100 percent i mean it seems like in the united states we've been very far behind europe with that line of thought you know i think a conscious mind with respect to how the buildings react and interact with our environment is not something we've considered here in the united states for that long it's definitely starting to become more commonplace but mm-hmm. it seems like it's been thought about that way in europe for many many years why do you think it's taken us so long to get with the program you know for a long time here i think buildings were made by developers rather than by private owners in europe most buildings are made by a private owner. So even if someone owns a tower, uh, the person who builds the building typically remains the owner. Uh, so it's an owner-driven building industry. And that means that an owner has much more interest in uh, the longevity of the building, the reduction of energy use, uh, reduction of maintenance, whereas a developer just sells the apartments and is out of there. So it's just a different approach, I think, of being an owner or a temporary owner, like a developer. So I think that's that's may, maybe the biggest uh, difference. You know, the moment you're part okay. of the building and you keep the building, you're also interested in the longevity of the building and the, the way the building operates. Yeah, I think that's I think that's also I've never thought about that, but I guess that's maybe why we see a lot more innovation with respect to smart architecture that looks to the longevity in commercial buildings and not so much in these residential condo buildings. So yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how difficult it's been, or maybe it hasn't been being an architect, uh, a female architect in a male dominated industry uh, real estate development, you know, there are a lot of really great female architects, but certainly this has been a very male-dominated industry. How do you think the industry has changed? How have you managed to be so successful in light of that? 
sort of successful. Um, so, well, no, I mean, yeah, and, and by the way, you can't offend me. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I always take my head off when I go into a room and there'll be 20 people sitting at a table and, you know, 19 of them are men. And there's one female who generally is the person taking notes and sometimes the smartest person in the room. And, you know, so I really commend you for being so successful and making your own brand. It couldn't have been easy. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I really love what I do. And I often feel so lucky that I, um, I get to spend the whole day doing something I love. I'm kind of one of those people that makes, I make agreements with myself. So when I chose a male profession, I promised myself and I did this, you know, when I studied and I was in a school with 500 guys and three girls. That was the architecture school in Holland. I decided, you know, that this was my own decision. I was not going to be bitter about it. I was never going to resent other people for my own choices. And I was going to keep the light, light version. So I smile and I smile a lot. And I, I use it also. Like if someone at the construction site tries to put me down, I usually, I'm also six foot tall, which really helps. But, you know, I <laughs> look down on them and say, well, you're the expert here, so what would you do? And then typically they melt down and they give me some good options or bad options. And if they're good, I take them, you know, and I say, that's brilliant. Let's do that. And typically that's it's great. the end of it, you know, like it's really not that complex. It's just like standing for who you are and, and making them understand you're not going to be defensive about it. And, you know, you're just who you are. And if I don't know what I, if I don't know it, then I say, I'll look it up in the office and come back to you. So I've been very also easy on myself, I think. You know, I don't feel like I need to prove anything to anyone. I don't care what they think of me. I do things with a sense of humor and humility and humanity and just try and think we're all people and let's make this a nice process. And I usually try and bring everyone on board just to to make a, a project that is excellent and something we're all proud of. So I I talked to the team like a team, you know, I said, listen, we're going to make this building. I want it to be better than any other building and I need your help in this. So, you know, I'll explain what my ambition is and I really like your input and your professional uh, opinion and craftsmanship. And, you know, I'm proud of the team and I look forward to working with you. And I basically just Make it a team. You know, I, I think it doesn't matter who we are, right? As long as we're all working mm-hmm. really hard and we're, we're standing for who we are and we're not flaking out, I think everyone's as valid as another. And I'll take it on my shoulders to take responsibility for a lot. And people like that. You know, they like if you're not backing off, like you're just saying, well, I'm here and I'm going to do this. Typically, that's mm-hmm. appreciated. So I've... I mean, it's funny, like, I don't feel like I've had a huge amount of trouble with it. I miss female colleagues, you know, like, I like the fact, so what what I really love about being the chair of architecture at Penn is that I've been uh, in the lucky position that I can hire a lot of women and uh, really make a kind of an equal 50-50 kind of environment that, um, you know, appreciates men and women equally, so... You know, that really made me feel really good about being able to do that. You know, that that I feel like I added a tiny bit in that 
unequality and uh, the women I found were absolutely phenomenal and I, I have great colleagues as women also outside of Penn at other universities. And there's a lot of female architects. It's just often they're in partnerships with either their husband or, you know, with someone else. But yeah, I think it's just, we, the women talk less. You know, if I invite a couple to come and give a lecture at Penn, uh, it's very often that the women says, yeah, yeah, my husband will just come and do it. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, so So, we tend to be okay with being in the background also sometimes. Right. So let's turn a little bit to your creative process. So you get hired or you have an assignment, uh, a project, or you're working on an, an assignment, and you sit down, you have a blank piece of paper, you know what the zoning is, you know what you know you can and cannot do by law mm-hmm. um, or by zoning, where do you begin? Where does that process start for you? And how does it, you know, like 497 Greenwich is a beautiful facade, this waterfall cantilevered glass facade over a pre-existing structure. And I think if that assignment had been awarded to 100 different architects, we would have seen 100 different designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love what you did there. It's really magnificent. How do you come up with the ideas and where do you begin your creative process? I like games. So what I do with the building code, for example, is I really love looking at what I cannot get. And then I figure out ways how to get back what I lost. <laughs> so I'm really loved by my developers because I always optimize their square footage. And if I have to give something back, I, I basically try and get it back somewhere else. Uh, Greenwich was a really interesting case because it was at that point still an industrial zone. So we had to rezone it, uh, the building, and uh, go through BSA. And because I'd never done that in my life, I thought, well, you know, this is probably very difficult, and I am uh, going to figure out how to get it. So I figured out 15 things that I wanted to ask for because I thought maybe I would get just two or something. But I also went to uh, Amanda... um, and the city, the head of city planning, and and propose, you know, showed her what I wanted to do, ask her advice. So I often make people part of the team very early on to sort of see what I can get away with and what I can't, and get them on board with the idea. Um, so that idea. So then, from the fifteen things, I think I got like twelve. So that building is really fun because it kind of is like, uh, it's liberating that building. And you feel that also because we got all these variances together uh, just because people like the concept of the building. Now, the concept of the building, you know, on that site, it was an old warehouse, a six-story warehouse and an empty site next to it. So we could have taken down the warehouse and built, uh, as of right, a commercial building of about 18 stories, I think. But with the developer together, we decided to keep the old warehouse and to keep the kind of beautiful quality of that street and then to play around with um, a new building next to it. So what we originally thought was, you know, we were actually looking for some small project with a small addition on the top, but here it became the... The extension was one and a half times or 150 times the size of the original. So it kind of became a little bit different. And the concept was, so I was looking at the, um, at the building code and what I didn't know being Dutch, that the building code uh, often has a tilted plane. 
as a setback rule. And normally that expresses itself in these kind of setback scenarios that look a little bit like a wedding cake. Uh, but I love the fact that it was a tilted plane and I'm really fond of mathematics. So I thought, hmm, I can use the tool of inflection in mathematics and just basically push the, the inclined plane through the straight plane and the straight plane through the inclined plane, which then basically makes the whole facade, instead of straight with setbacks, uh, something that is straight and tilted everywhere. So that's how, you, how I got these folds in the facade. And then it just goes from there. So it was really, really fun, though, because when you come up with concepts like that, you know, you know how it's going to look. But I look all kinds of really fun effects that I hadn't thought of. Like, for example, neighbors can look into each other's living room because the one tilts out further than the other. Or what is really beautiful, if it rains, you get like the rain coming on your glass and it feels like you're in a tent. Or the sun reflects really beautiful in the tilted glass. So you get these gorgeous crystalline light rays going through the facade. So it was really fun to see when it was built to kind of see all these effects that, um, that happen with glass when you do it, you know, when you don't just use it vertically. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting hearing, I, I didn't know that story and I didn't know how that's how you came up with the facade. It's one of my favorite facades uh, downtown. I mean, it's really beautiful. And I always thought you designed it because of the aesthetic, because it is beautiful to look at and it does do all of these things aesthetically that you're describing. But it seems like it came out of more of a mathematical equation that mm -hmm. kind of evolved into the design. Mm -hmm. how, how close is math related to the final design in architecture? Well, math is really great, right? Like we basically, you have to think one branch of mathematics is as um, geometry. And of course, architects use geometry all the time because we're always drawing. So yeah, it's triangles and squares and planes and whatever. What mathematics adds is like curvatures and, you know, interesting inflections and uh, more complex versions of uh, what geometry tries to also do. So when you study architecture, there's actually the requirement that you have mathematics and geometry as, uh, you know, in high school in Holland. I, I think it has something really uh, mysterious because, you know, there's something really interesting about it because in mathematics, it's not always absolute. There's also something called the state of things. And I think that's really beautiful. You know, I think that that is to me, I like the mystery of things like that. And we, we also play around with it in the sense that, for example, across the street from 497, funny enough, we recently built an eight-story townhouse where we have um, a climate skin around the building that is simply started happening because the extension of the building became as large as the original. So we thought that's kind of weird, you know, like extension supposed to be typically smaller or really large. So I, I didn't like that kind of one-to-one -one binary uh, relationship. So I added a third, what I call the third building, like that movie, The Third Man. So I added the third building and that building was uh, something that is a steel frame with uh, a trellis with slats in it. So it's, a, it's foldable and movable but it also extends the building much larger because I put balconies behind it and roof terraces. And the skin also creates a room on the roof that is a, a covered terrace. 
uh, with the kitchen. Um, so the, what is fun if you do that, you make a third building out of a trellis material that doesn't follow uh, DOB because it isn't a building, it's a trellis. So that was fun. So I could make the building virtually much larger and create all these uh, exterior spaces being part of the building while in the same time reducing overheating and overcooling of the building drastically. So really reducing the use of uh, heating and cooling systems and hence costs. And that is all that is then funny enough. So coming back to mathematics, when I was studying how I wanted to open the, the sections of the, of the trellis, I realized if I made the slats of each panel a little longer, you get kind of a bird wing like change of geometry or a change of um, configuration of the slats. So when you open these panels, the slats basically intersect and fold out. So you get this really beautiful bird-like configuration in the facade when you open the, when you open it. So when you open the facade, you completely transform the building. Amazing. And I've seen, I've walked by the building. It's really beautiful. It's, uh, it's really, and now, now I have a deeper appreciation now that you've described that to me. Really amazing. I mean, I think that, you know, mathematics is directly connected to, you know, the arts in a way that often we don't think about it. I know it's very connected to music, um, fine art, and, and definitely architecture, obviously. I'm going to ask you some quick questions. Who's your favorite architect other than yourself? I grew up with Rem Kola, so he's definitely one of my favorites. And as much for his intellect and thinking and writing as for his buildings. My favorite building is uh, the Philharmonie in Berlin by Sharon, um, which is a, a very strange building. I, I tend to, I, I appreciate things that are close to being ugly. You know, I like the border between beauty and ugly because I think ugly in the right way is often more beautiful than beautiful. Um, <laughs> so, so you, no, I mean, that's, that's interesting. So you, you kind of stole my second question. So I'm going to ask you, what's the ugliest building you've ever seen? <laughs> so I think the Philharmonie is also probably the ugliest building, but it's <laughs> the most beautiful building. Uh, I, I had an AMC Pacer as a car for 10 years. And so <laughs> also one of those things, you know, like the Pacer is both the ugliest and the most beautiful car you've ever seen. And I loved her dearly. Uh, right. Yeah. So I like that boundary, you know, because it, I don't, I don't like style and, and accepted aesthetics. I like things that make you wonder. Mm -hmm. It's almost, there's like this tension that creates this tension between the two things, which, you know, is very interesting. What's your favorite uh, book you've ever read? Okay. In literature, Probably The Boxman by Kobe Abe. Uh -huh. uh, it's, it's about a, a man who lives in a box and his head is in a box. Um, really beautiful the way he sees the world and how he describes the world. And uh, in architectural theory, I really love uh, Gilles Deleuze as a French philosopher. And he wrote a book, A Thousand Plateaus. And probably most of what I do comes out of thinking about what he's writing there, which is an amazing compilation of uh, thoughts of space and complexities and interesting things. So yeah, I love those. And I often read in order, I never really look at other people's architecture much 
Um, so I'm kind of really not that aware of what's going on normally. But what I really love is reading books like that because they make me think about spaces I haven't seen yet. Yeah, amazing. I haven't read either of those, but I've put them on my list and uh, I'm definitely going to read those. So you're doing projects all across the world. I'm sure you're incredibly busy, but a big part of being creative and a big part of being successful and allowing yourself to think is creating time in your schedule, I believe, to allow your mind to think freely, to have structured time for unstructured thinking. Mm -hmm. Do you manage to do that? And do you have like a daily ritual that you like honor and respect that helps you to do this? Yeah, too. In the morning, I really like having an hour by myself that I have a coffee and I think about the day. And at night, I take also an hour to meditate. And that makes me sort of aware, I think, of where I want to keep focusing and how to prioritize what I do. I have two full-time jobs because I do both the office and the university. So I, I calibrate my time, but I also, I'm one of those people I probably always work, but then I can I also feel that I have always time, you know, so I basically make gaps in my own life. If a friend shows up from Europe or a friend's in New York wants to do something, I basically most of the time always have time. And that's just because I've taken that decision. I think it's really important to give yourself constant breaks. I'm not a big like, oh, I have to go on three weeks vacation. I don't really, that always, even as a kid, used to make me sick. I like thinking that I am a free person and I can stop anytime I want and do something with someone else for a moment. So I like to be very flexible that way. And, and that's kind of the rule I stick to, you know, that I always have time for people. That's amazing. I agree a thousand percent. And um, that's a big part of why you're so successful. So I'm, I'm not lucky enough to be one of your students. But, you know, my last question for you is when you stand in front of these students and if you look at them and you have the opportunity to give your 20-something-year-old self a piece of advice, what is the one piece of advice you're giving these architecture students today? Well, what is my goal very much is to make them people that can have an argument, can explain their arguments, and not only make really beautiful things, but also really understand what these things mean in the world and how they stand in the world as a person. Um, so maybe to to teach them to be independent thinkers and and kind of leaders in their profession, but also to, to kind of be a person that is aware of that. Because as an architect, you can be extremely talented, but never build anything because it is really a combination of different uh, attributes that you have to have in order for it to work. And so I try and teach them that to be holistic and aware of, of the difficulty of it, but also understand that, you know, being human and being who you are is really important. And it's important to stick to that also. I, I think that's uh, beautiful advice. And I can tell you've taken your own advice because I think you've achieved that in your career to date. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what 
you're doing next and what the future brings through your architecture. Very, very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's a super exciting profession. You know, it's never boring, let's say. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm sure you're incredibly busy. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I'm looking forward to seeing what you bring. And uh, thank you for everything. Thank you, Sean. It was a super pleasure to be uh, on your podcast. All right. Thanks so much, Winka. 